was slinging puns at a B&B when he had an epiphany. And they complained about time too, about not playing D&D. It was free for all, and I heard him say he bought my Borderlands. But just sit back and let Spencer do his trick, cause you're incapable AMs. Thank you, Mr. T.J. Drennan. Welcome to Keep Off the Borderlands. My name's Spencer, a.k.a. Free Thrall, PDF Holder, RPG Player, and Aspiring GM. So, what have we here? Just going to respond to a few call-ins and some initial thoughts about Sword and Scoundrel which is something I was able to try out a few days ago. You can hear both me and Jason from Nerds RPG Variety Cast talking about that on a recent episode of Island Walkers Live from Pelham's Wasteland. But first up... Hey Spencer, it's Che. I just wanted to say thank you. Is it episode 105 when you did your hand solo with Rhesus? Really enjoy listening to that. Um, Rhesus is a game that I I read many, many years ago and at the time just didn't grow up. kind of thought, what? There's nothing here. <laughs> um, uh, so it was kind of nice to see that put into use. Um, and also just wanted to say thank you for shouting out uh, the interview I had with Daniel Jones. Um, yeah, I really enjoyed that. Um, I've got another one with him coming as well. So I'm I'm hoping that you'll enjoy a second dose. And I have to say that there's been loads of call-ins too. Um, and so, yeah. Anyway, I'm wittering. I just wanted to say thank you for talking about uh, the stuff you're doing. And um, yeah, I have no idea what Dr. Ludus was on about either, but I did enjoy the call. So anyway, what am I saying? I'm saying thank you. Cheers, Spencer. Game on. Thank you, Che. Che Webster there from Roleplay Rescue. And that initial response you had to the Rhesus rules, you know, what is this? There's nothing here, was my initial impression of it, uh, which is what prompted me to suggest that it might not be good for people who were unfamiliar with role-playing. But obviously, you are someone who is familiar with role-playing. I was familiar with role-playing, perhaps to a lesser degree. And as Jason suggested in his other message, that it's those preconceptions, I think, that lead you to believe that there's not enough there to make a game. And I guess if you consider that it's it's designed for that fast, fun, light-hearted play, there's really quite a lot that you can do with it. And also, I mean, there's a wealth of information out there. You've got the Reese's First website, which has lots of additional rules and content. And there's a companion for it and just, just a whole lot of stuff out there and um, a real creative community attached to that. Yes, I'm also very interested in hearing more from Daniel Jones. Very, very interesting conversation there too. So thanks for that. 
it's clear that he hadn't listened to the call from Barney, basically elaborating what Ludus was alluding to. And we'll be hearing from Che a little bit later. But before that, I've got a little more from Barney here. Hi Spencer, it's Barney. I really enjoyed listening to the conversation that you constructed for us in the last episode. Thanks ever so much for that. The flagging up Tom Waits I thought was brilliant. Even more amazing was the Chuck Jones Roadrunner Wiley Coyote example. I love I love all of that. Um so yeah, so that was that was really nice that was really nice to hear. I do think our views on internal logic are still at opposite ends but totally uh, complement each other so that was really nice to hear with the roadrunner example you've got those you know these ideas of internal logic going through them but lots of the jokes come when the internal logic breaks um, like yeah, I don't know. Roadrunner's able to go through the painting, uh, but Wiley Coyote's not. Or something. I can't if, even remember if that's a proper example. Anyway, um, thanks again, and I'm really looking forward to when we can get back to Bastionland and chatting directly with each other. See you. Thank you, Barney. Barney from Loco Ludus there. Really looking forward to the next opportunity to... Uh, have another Bastion social. And yes, internal logic. Uh, that example you use there as the internal logic breaking, I would argue that that is actually written into the internal logic. Uh, this quite nicely ties into the a priori, a posteriori example that you introduced. I mean, looking at your example there of Wiley Coyote painting the tunnel onto a wall to fool the Roadrunner and the Roadrunner actually using it as a tunnel before Wiley Coyote then <laughs> discovers that it's still merely a painting. Um, in a way, the Roadrunner is the a priori. The world for the Roadrunner behaves exactly as the Roadrunner assumes that it will behave. Whereas the Coyote, in his a posteriori world, has all his expectations subverted, always assuming that his latest acme purchase will behave exactly as it suggests when in fact it never does so i mean these rules this logic is consistent it is written into the world that things will behave exactly as they do for each individual character um so i wonder if we are at opposite ends but then I think there was also a discrepancy between our understanding 
of verisimilitude, as this next message from Che points out. Hey Spencer, Che, I just wanted to thank you and Barney for the recent episode talking about those four words. Um, and wow, I didn't realise that um, some people have a completely different definition of words to me, like verisimilitude. Dude, um, it doesn't mean having everything sewn up to me. Uh, that was totally like, no, that's not how I define the word at all. Um, and I, I actually, I guess I'm influenced by Karl Popper, the philosopher, but this idea of truth-likeness is what I think verisimilitude is, uh, you know, like this illusion of reality. Um, it feels like, basically, that given all things being equal, basically, it feels about right. Anyway, uh, that was just kind of the first thing. And I always find that fascinating because I think, you know, language is so, so, so rich and so interesting. Um, so, yeah, that was my first thought. And, of course, the second one was really about this idea of tonal consistency. Uh, thanks, Che. And before we jump into that second part, I just wanted to say that I did have a similar reaction to you when Barney suggested verisimilitude was about having things all sewn up. I'm not sure I fully understood that. Rather than call it out, I decided to add my own understanding of what verisimilitude meant to me, kind of things being of a particular kind of reality, as you say, an approximation of how things are. But sorry, I interrupted you there, Che. You were talking about tonal consistency. And I totally take the point that um, Barney was making about how important that can be. Um, and of course, it, it made me smile when you were later talking about, I think the analogy you used is having the rug pulled out from under you. Um, yeah, there has to be a rug first. And um, I think that the important thing about tone, if you want to challenge tone and make things interesting in a story, is you first have to establish that tone. I mean, if to use Barney's example of the hero's journey, yeah, but there has to be a home and there has to be a normal and there has to be a, a status quo that is then going to be disrupted and you're going to be drawn out of. And of course, what ultimately happens in the hero's journey is you return and you transform that normal to something new. So I think it's really interesting, these ideas we talked about, um, but I think they're central. I think they're absolutely essential. Um, they are really important to be thinking about because they're the basis of a rich game. But hey, that's just my two penneth. Game on. Thanks very much for that, Che. Uh, really appreciate that you got so much out of that discussion and um, certainly struck me as something worth talking about. And that's a perfectly valid point, you know, in order for things to be subverted, you need to have expectations. You need to have an established state of affairs. So, yeah, yeah, thank you for listening. And um, thanks again to Barney for uh, making that conversation possible. Hey, Spencer, Jason here. Interesting listen to your comments on Barney's message. Yeah, I, I think it just, you know, a lot of it just depends on that, having that talk before you start playing between the players and the GM and deciding what kind of game you want to play, you know. If if you're going to change the genre in the middle of the game and the players aren't up for that, you're going to have problems. If you're going to introduce the Roadrunner rules, you know, Roadrunner logic halfway through the game, you're potentially going to have problems. Um, if, 
you know, and the same thing with, with world building. There's nothing inherently wrong with doing this style of world building where the GM asks players questions and have them join in the world building with, you know, with their answers. But if everybody's not on board with that, then, you know, you probably shouldn't do it. So, yeah, I think those ground rules are really important. Jason from Nerds RPG Variety Cast there, and thank you very much for that message, Jason. Yes, I certainly agree. I wouldn't be springing anything like that on players halfway through a session or a campaign. Um, my reference to Roadrunner rules was about internal logic, so they're things that would be part of you know how the world works from the outset. I guess you're referring to my reference to things like um, From Dusk Till Dawn, which switches up the genre halfway through. And uh, yeah, that could be potentially jarring. But as you say, I think you could foreshadow something like that, maybe plant some little seeds in. Mistake would be that the switch up would invalidate what had gone before. So if I was going to add anything drastic to the setting, it would be overlaid on what was pre-existing. So it would possibly be something that might show previous events in a different light, might cause people to think about them differently, but would not be just abandoning what had already been established. As far as collaborative world building goes, it's not something I have a problem with. I have expressed that as a player... I like the idea of exploring a GM's world. But, you know, things like that happen all the time. Playing in Dave's games, we'll pose a question and he'll put it back to us. Say, what do you think? You're familiar with this particular environment. What do you know about the situation? Who are you connected to? That kind of stuff. And, um, yeah, no problem with that whatsoever so yeah i'm in agreement with you there jason thank you very much hey spencer this is carl giving you another message um yes blackmore seemed to have some technology i was looking through some old blackmore modules temple of the frog and city of god and there's like ray guns and robots in it and i guess the canon sort of maybe retrocon canon in Mistara as Blackmore is under all the other detritus of previous ages or part of the detritus right there's like snake men and fish men and other things that are under the ground in Mistara including Blackmore after the big meteorite that hit way back 3,000 years from the present time so it's there and uh, it's pretty cool that tech mixed with um, fantasy. Carl Rodriguez there. Thank you, Carl. Thank you for filling that out. It's not something I know too much about, but the way you describe it there, it's almost Thundar the Barbarian. <laughs> I'm sure it's not quite that bonkers. I think it's certainly something I'm going to have to look more into. Hey, Spencer. <clears throat> Carl again. I guess I'm liking your show. Actually, my cat likes the intro by TJ too. I guess that <clears throat> that sort of guitar lit, uh, riff 
is kind of discordant, and cats like discordant music, which is interesting. Um, she also likes heavy metal, so maybe it's a unique cat. Anyway, I kind of agree with Jason. I, he kind of placed it. You know, it really is um, D and D in general. You know, really has this cliche of being a bunch of murder hobos, but really that's almost like a Wild West mentality. So in a way, it kind of is true. You know, there's no real structure or, and it's a very much of a boom economy. I mean, uh, you go into a dungeon and get, a, you know, thousands and thousands of gold pieces, which totally ruins the economy of the local uh, local land. So yeah, it's a uh, Western. Thanks, Carl. And I'm glad to hear that your cat enjoys the show, even if you're not 100% convinced. <laughs> but uh, thank you. Um, and I think this idea of certainly D&D being more like a Western. I'm not, I'm not sure if that was mentioned in Che Webster's interview with Daniel Jones, but I certainly feel that that's what he was getting at when he was talking about kind of the modern mindset, this sort of absence of the more mythic, the more superstitious, the more irrational approach to living. Yeah, so that's really, really interesting. That all seems to be feeding into each other. And um, certainly something I would like to hear more of Daniel Jones's thoughts on that. But thank you very much for those messages, Carl. And it was a real shame you weren't able to uh, join us in Arlen Walker's game. But I very much look forward to you being there for the next session. And that kind of session zero we had is what I'm going to be talking about next. Hold up. Now, just listen back to my response to your message there. And I realized that I was following a different train of thought that wasn't necessarily connected with what you'd called in about. I did hear what you said and uh, it was very interesting and I've got nothing to add to that, but... I just wanted to let you know that I'm aware that my response didn't seem to have a lot to do with the message you left me. So I just wanted to talk a little bit about a recent uh, session that I was involved in. Um, it, kind of a session zero. I was fortunate enough to be able to join a session run by Arlen Walker. Arlen Walker has the Live from Pelham's Wasteland podcast, which I highly recommend. It's a podcast I'm a big fan of. Arlen seems to be exploring new systems all the time. And recently he mentioned being interested in a game called Sword and Scoundrel. He was looking to run it, and that's something that I stumbled across quite early on. And when I say quite early on, for anyone who's been listening along, I'm talking about just a couple of years ago. And in amongst the mountains of PDFs that I have, this is one that piqued my interest. And when I heard that Arlen wanted to run it, it just seemed too good to miss. And we had a really... Really interesting session. 
it is quite an intimidating rule set for me, at least. I do favour rules like systems, and while the core mechanic of this is very light, there is quite a narrative style to the play, which is something I'm not too familiar with, and there's quite an involved combat system. So I was very pleased that Arlen was able to take me and Jason of Nerds RPG Varietycast through this session zero. We kind of, he helped us complete the character sheets, which were quite involved. And we were able to do a few rounds of combat and then a little skirmish. And you can hear us reflecting on that in Ireland's most recent episode. That's episode 20 of season two. And at the core of this system, it's a D6 system using dice pools. The narrative element of the game is built around this idea of a character having drives, a series of goals. Every time the character is able to complete one of those goals or work towards it, they're rewarded with points that can then be spent elsewhere. And what was interesting about these rules, as I say, I'm not too familiar with narrative games, so I don't know whether this is as innovative as it appeared to me. But but this idea of uh, task resolution, the conflict mechanic, when your character is attempting to do something using their skills, that if you fail in a task, this isn't a matter of your character's skills failing them the failure is due to some external event beyond your control and that suggests two things to me one that failing something gives rise to the opportunity of something interesting happening rather than you just not being able to do something but also it gives the impression that your character is competent even if they're unable to complete their task. It's not through a lack of skill or ability. So I found that particularly interesting. Um, When it came to coming up with a character, uh, because of this drives idea, I wanted to create a character who would undergo a significant change over the course of possibly just a few sessions. So I came up with the idea of having a naive character called Aphilis from quite a wealthy background who'd led quite a cosseted existence. Because of their wealth, they were able to get a good education but also receive uh, combat training, essentially being someone really venturing out into the great wide world for the first time a head full of adventure, but they were going to encounter the harsh realities and the true complexity of the real world. So that was my thinking in building the character, in the sense that they'd, you know, they'd learned a lot, but they hadn't really put it to the test. Now, as far as this session was concerned, the combat was really interesting. This is something that uh, I would have found more daunting if I'd actually had the correct version of the rules before we started playing because I'd picked these rules up 
Uh, these are beta rules, by the way. Picked them up a couple of years ago. They weren't the latest version, and there was an additional hundred odd pages that I hadn't actually seen that really went into breaking down the combat. The combat is blow by blow. You are describing every manoeuvre and each roll. You are spending from a dice pool to reflect how much effort you're putting into each manoeuvre. And if your opponent is able to defend themselves, you can connect, but not cause any real damage. So there's there's much less of a feeling of you whiffing, of you actually missing your opponent. If you don't strike a significant blow, it's usually because your attack has been countered by their defensive manoeuvre. So there's this real back and forth to the combat. What's interesting is it gives it a real tactical feel but it's still very much theatre of the mind, which I thought was very interesting. It's all about your intention, what you're aiming to do. And where I've always favoured quite light combat rules, because there's this impression, certainly that I've got, that complex combat rules can slow a game right down, you can spend a long time knocking points off of one another. But this didn't feel like that at all. The way the combat works is it's filled with a sense of drama. The detail in the kind of cut and thrust makes it really exciting, even though the combat may be taking slightly longer than what I'm used to. It was really enjoyable in a way that I hadn't really anticipated. So that was that was really good. And I really appreciate Arlen's patience with uh, taking us through that. Because it did take quite a bit of explaining, but once you, certainly once I felt I started getting the hang of it, it is quite intuitive. And I'm really looking forward to a next session in a couple of weeks' time where we will, we will be getting into actually adventuring so uh, I'm very much looking forward to seeing how that develops. Well, that's about enough for me, I think. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you so much for your calls. If you want to leave me a message, please contact me via the anchor link in the description you can always email me or leave me an audio message at spencer.freeforall at gmail.com there's a facebook page for keep off the borderlands you can find me on twitter and MeWe on the audio dungeon discord and various other places on discord as free thrall i'd also like to thank tj drennan for the wonderful music he provides And it just remains for me to say, take it away, TJ.
Warning, if celebrating the sound of dice hitting the table and pondering the meaning of the many acronyms within your player's handbook doesn't cure that burning sensation, please see your doctor.